Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Beijing's bonanza, the Winter Olympic Games, gets underway. Friends and foes, Putin and Xi vow to deepen their relationship amid pressure from the West. And jobs jolt, the US economy shrugs off Omicron as employment soars. It's Friday, let's make a move. Well, welcome to all our first movers around the globe for a firework-filled Friday as the Winter Olympic Games officially kicks off in Beijing, a spectacle of multicultural pageantry, strict COVID security and political summary. Fireworks in Techland too after a medal-worthy earnings performance by Amazon and more explosions once again. The latest U.S. jobs report of Olympic importance too and a surprise gold medal performance there. I think a massive 467 thousand jobs were added back net to the economy last month, more than twice what most analysts were expecting. Some, in fact, were bracing for the first net loss of jobs in two years as COVID cases surged to all-time highs during the collection, the data collection period. Job gains were revised significantly higher too for the past two months and wage growth ease. We'll discuss all the details with former New York Fed President Bill Dudley later on in the show. U.S. futures sagging, however, as investors consider the risks for even swifter Fed monetary policy tightening. Futures actually had been higher, helped along by strong earnings from Amazon. That stock up 11% pre-market. And you can see the Nasdaq relatively unchanged. So bucking the broader trend lower. Meta's, formerly known as Facebook's, 26% stock price collapse on Thursday, still reverberating through the tech world too. For context, these are the moves to the Nasdaq this week, up more than 3% Monday, down 3.5% Thursday, and net down, what, 11% year to date. I tell you what, there is nothing healthy about the Olympic-sized tech stock and market moves that we are seeing. Let's get to the drivers. Much to discuss, as always. And let the games begin. Beijing has fired the starting gun on the 2022 Winter Olympics with a spectacular light-filled opening ceremony. Now 3,000 athletes are literally off to the races, competing in 109 different events over the next two weeks. Those Olympic rings particularly fitting this time around too. The event takes place, as we've discussed many times, within a so-called closed-loop COVID bubble. Selena Wang deserves a gold medal of her own for making it inside that loop. And she joins us now. Selena, great to have you with us. Politics aside, I love the Olympic opening ceremonies, uh, a collision, I think, of culture, a celebration of huge sporting talent, which ultimately is what the Olympics is about. Selena, walk us through this opening ceremony. What did we see? Well, Julia, it was another visually stunning opening ceremony. There was the use of elaborate technology, but Julia, it was more subdued, simpler than the games back in 2008. It used 3,000 performers versus the 15,000 14 years ago. Back then, there was this immense pressure for China to pull off these extravagant games covering thousands of years of Chinese history over four hours. But this time, China has less to prove. Back 
then it was about cementing China as an emerging global power on the world stage. The country now is more confident in that opening ceremony as well as the Olympics in general is about using that moment for China to show the world a wealthy and powerful China and one that under Xi Jinping is more authoritarian and increasingly at odds with the West. And just so many contrasts to the 2008 games when there was George W. Bush sitting shoulder to shoulder with Chinese leaders. This time around, a very different guest of honor, Vladimir Putin. Julia. Yeah, uh, and I would have to say, I mean, I was looking at what the motto of the 2022 Games is, together for a shared future. But if the reality is looked at closely for the, what, 21, I believe, leaders that will be hosted at these Games, um, they do preside over non-democratic regimes. And that's the reality. Yeah, exactly, Julia. I mean, you look at that list, it's full of many autocratic leaders, strong men, according to Freedom House. Most of them, the vast majority, are from countries considered not free or just partly free. In addition to Putin, you had the leaders of Egypt, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, the Saudi prince, uh, Mohammed bin Salman. So a very different set of friends than what we had seen before. And that's as you have the U.S. and some of its allies, including the U.K., Australia and Canada, staging a diplomatic boycott of these games as a statement against allegations of genocide in China's Xinjiang region, allegations that China has denied. Now, back in 2008, again, drawing this comparison. At that point, China was trying to meet the world's terms. But now for 2022, the message is the world needs to meet China's terms. Julia. Yes. And very quickly, Selena, we could hear sort of what sounded like drums in the background. And I think now we can hear a helicopter. Is that what I'm hearing or was that fireworks? Not drums. It was actually somebody rolling a very large suitcase across here. There's, oh. there's been a lot of volunteers. Um, there's a few. There's a few camera crews around us. There's been a lot of activity. I mean, here inside the closed loop, we are truly confined, and we've seen staff members just trying to get as close to the action as possible, lined up over there, back behind me, trying to get photos and videos of those fireworks. So a lot of activity here. But again, we're completely separate from the general population. Just credentialed Olympic participants in this area in we're actually totally fenced off with barricades. There is no uh, leaving this closed loop, Julia. No, I mean, I'm obviously going to go and get a hearing test after uh, after this show as well. <laughs> drums, fireworks. It was very no. loud. I, I don't blame Luggage you for being rolled. <laughs> Selena Wang, thank you for that. All right, let's move on. Warm, constructive and substantive. That's what the Kremlin said after Russian President Vladimir Putin held a meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping in Beijing ahead of that Olympic opening ceremony. Nick Robertson is live in Moscow for more with us. Nick, great to have you with us. Um, clearly natural compliments between these two nations in their view, their hostility towards liberal democracies, their current tensions with the United States and, and more broadly in the West, I think. But there's also economic and other strategic interests between the two. And I think we're already seeing those strengthen at this moment. Yeah, we are. And, and the uh, Kremlin foreshadowed that. They said between maybe 14, 15 business deals would be tied up. And Rosneft uh, has seen one of those deals land in its lap. Perhaps no surprise there. The uh, boss of Rosneft, uh, Igor Siachin, traveled with President Putin to China. Uh, and that deal worth, uh, well, is 100 million tons of oil to be supplied by that big state, uh, Russian state company uh, to the Chinese over the next 10 
10 years, you'll know the figures better than me, but that's got to be $50 billion plus. And this is what, you know, President Putin is looking for. He's looking for some outlet to sell his products because he knows that if he invades Ukraine uh, or causes sanctions to be triggered on him by the West. We're told those sanctions will be huge, they'll be painful. So whatever deals he can carve out with China, you know, are going to be to his benefit. China can't offset everything that would be coming his way. Uh, and we think back to 2014 when he invaded Crimea and then he turned to China then for a big gas deal. He got a big gas deal, $400 billion worth of gas sold to China. But you know what? President Xi knew President Putin was in a corner and he got good terms. They were tough long negotiations and the real details were never made public. So it's kind of a similar scenario right now. But what they're projecting is that this partnership can go forward, can be beneficial to them. And I think look at all those uh, all those nations leaders who are present. We're seeing the world sort of become a little bit more polar and they're possibly going to make it, you know, a fiscal polarity as well. You know, they're talking about joining up in high tech and green tech in the technologies of the future. That's big help that Russia needs. It's where China's headed at the moment. But if they, you know, can brand themselves together, withstand sanctions that both nations get from uh, get from the United States, you know, there's an avenue for them. And that's I, I think that's that's a big thing for Putin. Big thing to be on the stage with Xi. Big thing for both of them to project at this time. Yeah, the optics as vital as anything else. Nick Robertson, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. Now, China as we were hearing there, has an ally in Russia as the 2022 Olympic Games begin. But with tensions still high between the West and Russia over Ukraine, China could be Russia's only economic option if it were to be cut off from the West, perhaps. Anna Stewart joins me now. Anna, it's interesting and it ties precisely to what Nick was saying there. Uh, Putin may come bearing the gifts of uh, greater gas contracts to China, but how easy is it in practice really for the Russians to reduce their reliance on European buyers, for example. Yeah, that's there's just been so much conversation, hasn't there, about an idea that if uh, Russia couldn't export gas to Europe, it could just simply redirect it to China. And it's just not that easy. First of all, I think we should point out that uh, the pivot from Russia to uh, towards China has been going on now for some years and with some degree of success, I have to say. Uh, we can bring up a graphic. China is Russia's biggest trading partner. It accounts for about 16 percent of its trade value. Last year, bilateral trade reached $146 billion, which is actually a huge increase from the year before. Now, we'll get on to the other way around because actually Russia is a tiny uh, trading partner, really, when it comes to China. Energy, biggest revenue for Russia. No surprises that we're seeing that Rosneft deal being signed today. Um, it accounts for maybe one and a half to two percent of China's overall um, oil needs on an annual basis. Um, but gas, as Nick was saying, there is also a big deal as well. And it's interesting to see uh, what's already in place. There is a pipeline that we can show you, the power of Siberia that runs from Russia to China. But currently it only exports around 10 billion cubic meters a year, just 10. And compared to Europe, that's 175 years. So you can just see the difference there. There is an issue with capacity. There's a dotted line you can see on your screen right now, the power of Siberia too. That's really a pipe dream of Russia's. This is potentially a pipeline that would run through the country, through Mongolia and into China. It would definitely help to ease Russia's reliance on Europe. Uh, but it would take years. It would take a lot of investment, as would increasing LNG exports, as would all of their plans. And the issue is, if they're faced with sanctions, that investment, those years, it's probably not going to happen. Yeah, I mean, gosh, the number of years, the scale of investment, <laughs> even geography, the size of a pipeline that we're talking about here matters. But, hey, 
when you're uh, under pressure and diplomacy and uh, images like that and the discussion about that matters, but the contact matters more. Anna, great job. Thank you so much for that. All right, now to the sports. From ice hockey to figure skating, athletes from around the world have begun their quest for gold and glory. Koi Wai joins us from Beijing. Koi, always fantastic to have you on the show. Figure skating, actually one of my favourites, and freestyle skiing. Freestyle skiing, my apologies. But um, let's talk about what we've seen day one, figure skating. Yeah, Julia, good to see you. Figure skaters are the most impressive athletes to me on this planet. They're so graceful, their rhythm, their timing, their power, their flexibility, all combined uh, just make for some really incredible stuff. Uh, The short program here at the Olympics saw it earlier today, the first part of it at least. And Nathan Chen of Team USA is one of the favorites to win gold. The short program had been his kryptonite. But uh, Superman is back. Uh, incredible performance by Chen. He recorded his personal best in the short program, second only to Yuzuru Hanyu's world record. He set the place on fire. It uh, vaulted Team USA into first place currently in the team competition. Now, Japan's Shoma Uno is also someone to watch. Caught my eye during the men's short program of the team event, finishing second. He won silver in Pyeongchang right behind his fellow countryman and two-time Olympic champ Yuzuru Hanyu. Uh, Finally, Julia, we have to talk about host nation China, currently in third, just behind the Russian Olympic Committee, thanks to a world record performance in the pairs uh, part of the program. Uh, 26-year-old Wen Xing Sui and 29-year-old Kong Han skating to the music from Mission Impossible. They scored 82.83. They've been skating together since 2007 when they were 11 and 14 years old, Julia. They won silver in Pyeongchang in pairs, but this this moment they will remember forever, breaking a world record here in Japan, uh, in Beijing, in the host nation, China. Yeah, I mean, what a performance like that in front of the home crowd, even if it's a dramatically reduced crowd. Um, I'm going to go back and watch that performance again. Phenomenal. Um, and Corey, I just wanted to get your take for, for all the concern and the criticism and what we've seen in terms of images of the control measures that the authorities there have been put into place. In the end, these measures are to try and protect people and to stop them getting sick. And I, I just wanted to get your take and your experiences from being there about what people are experiencing and, and the efforts people are going to, to to keep you safe. Yeah, look, it, it, it's one of the, the most uh, protected places on the planet right now. I mean, the, the, they, this closed loop system is absolutely going to work in the end. The COVID factor has been the biggest cloud looming over these athletes' heads. Uh, you know, they haven't been able to train as usual, even just getting here to Beijing. Some of them have been stuck away from their home nations for months because they didn't want to risk uh, co- getting COVID ahead of the games. I spoke to one athlete here who chose not to walk in the opening ceremony because of the close proximity to other athletes. So it's certainly something they're thinking about. But Inside this closed loop, Julia, they should be about as protected as you can be. Organizers have taken precautions very seriously. You know, they said all along that they're, they weren't trying to prevent COVID from getting in. They kind of expected that. But their goal is to stop the spread of the virus once everyone is inside the closed loop. And uh, from what I've seen and the precautions that are being taken and as seriously as everyone is uh, respecting those protocols, uh, they should be able to pull that off uh, pretty effectively, Julia. Yeah, politics, noise, geopolitics aside, in the end, we just want these athletes to be able to do their best and to, to stay healthy. Koi, great to have you with us. Stay healthy too, please. Thank you. Why there from Beijing. 
Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. A spokesman for the British Prime Minister says Boris Johnson has not lost control of Downing Street after several of his aides resigned. On Friday, a special adviser became the fifth person to quit in the past 24 hours. It comes with the Prime Minister under criticism over a series of scandals, including lockdown-defying parties at Downing Street. U.S. President Joe Biden watched in real time Wednesday as U.S. commandos carried out an operation in northwest Syria that led to the death of the leader of ISIS. During the raid, the Biden administration says Abu Ibrahim al-Hashmi al-Qureshi detonated a bomb, killing himself and his family. Qureshi succeeded ISIS founder Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who died in a similar U.S. raid in 2019. NATO Secretary General says he will become the governor of Norway's central bank this December after he leaves his post at NATO. Jens Stoltenberg has been the alliance's figurehead since 2014. His term expires in October. The Secretary General says he will stay focused on his NATO duties until then. And to come here on First Move, January's job jump. The former president of the New York Fed, Bill Dudley, on that Omicron-resistant job surge. And a bridge too far, the Amazonian proportions of Jeff Bezos' yacht threaten to cause a prime delivery delay. That's all coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and Global Investors. Surprised, I think, after a U.S. jobs jolt of pretty monumental proportions. Just released numbers show a U.S. economy adding an extremely strong net 467,000 jobs last month. To put things into perspective, many were bracing for a significant job loss for the month. The fear was that Omicron pressures would affect hiring. In fact, we saw strong job gains in leisure and hospitality and also retail. Futures turning lower as a result. So good news is bad news. Remember, good news on the economy is not necessarily good news for markets and for investors. And these numbers give the Federal Reserve perhaps a further green light to tighten policy and pull economic support sooner rather than later. The relentless rise in oil is surely a concern for the inflation-fearing Fed too. Brent crude pushing towards $93 a barrel. U.S. crude at more than seven-year highs. Plenty to discuss this morning. Bill Dudley joins me now. He's the former president of the New York Federal Reserve. He's currently the senior research scholar at Princeton University's Center for Economic Policy Studies and the senior advisor to Bloomberg Economics. Bill, fantastic to have you with us on the show this morning. We like these kind of positive surprises where net job gains are concerned. What do you make of the numbers this morning? I think what it tells you is that businesses are trying to find workers desperately because the number of unfilled jobs is very high relative to the number of people that are actually unemployed. That ratio is an all-time record. So if you can find people, you hire them. Uh, and so the job gains are really being driven by the ability of people to find workers as opposed to workers looking actively for, you know, for jobs. So the labor market is very tight. And you can see that in terms of the wage trend, uh, a big increase in average hourly earnings this month. Uh, the year-over-year increase is well above 5% now. And what it shows you is that uh, you know we do have a bit of an inflation problem in the U.S. because wages now are at a level that's inconsistent with the Fed's 2% inflation objective. I mean, the other thing that we could talk about here is the revisions for the final three months of the year and that 738,000 jobs uh, added in terms of revisions for the back end of last year. I mean, however hot you think this economy is, it seems a lot hotter today. Yeah, it does. I mean, some of that, some of those upper revisions were just uh, due to changes in how they assign gains through the year. So I, I wouldn't put too much weight on it. But I mean, the bottom line is the labor market in the U.S. is extremely tight. 
And what's so extraordinary is that the Federal Reserve is still buying assets. They're still adding accommodation. So this just underscores the fact that the Fed is behind the curve. We'll see liftoff in March, and they're probably going to go every meeting for a while until they get the federal funds rate up a, a considerable amount. Do you think there's a risk that they go half a percentage point in March? Because even based on pricing today, that would be a shock. Uh, I think that they won't, uh, as long as the market doesn't expect them to. I don't think the Fed mm. is in the, in the habit of trying to shock markets, especially at a time where the market view of what the Fed's going to do and the Fed's view of what the Fed's going to do are not very different. There's not a big gap in expectations. or So there's no real need to uh, you know, shock the markets. And I, I just don't think it's also Chair Powell's style. Now, if the markets start to get to a view that, gee, the Fed should do 50 basis points, uh, then that puts the Fed in a more difficult position. Do we want to do what the, what the market wants or do we want to do what we want? And then what do they do? I mean, this is a fascinating point and you sort of, you got there before me, but I was going to say it anyway. So what we're saying is if the market starts to price closer and significantly closer to a half a percentage point rise, the Fed will probably end up doing that. Well, or they could just come out and say, no, we want to be gradual. What's, what's interesting about Fed speakers over the last week or two is a number of them came out and, and talked about how we want to move in a you know, sort of gradual way. So at least there are the number of people on the Federal Open Market Committee that don't want to do 50 basis points. They sort of signaled that uh, in their recent commentary. What do you think they end up doing this year? I mean, I've, I've been looking at some of the forecasts. I think Goldman Sachs is saying five quarter of a percent rate hikes. Bank of America is now saying seven. Um, <laughs> based on what you're seeing in terms of the economy and to the point we were just making there, what, what the market, corporates, businesses, small businesses can withstand, is that the kind of ballpark? Rates are very I think, low. I think, it's, I think it's five or more. But the yeah. key question is going to be how fast does inflation come back down? We know that 7% inflation is really being driven a lot by temporary factors, like, the, for example, the spike in used car prices. And used car prices are already starting to soften. So we know inflation is going to come down in, in 2022. The question is how much? If it looks like it's settling out in you know, the 2.5%, 3% range, the Federal Reserve can be pretty you know, cautious in terms of how fast they go. But if it settles out north of 3%, then the Federal Reserve is going to have to go a lot more quickly. Also, how markets react to the Fed is going to be important. I mean, the Chair Powell has talked about the importance of financial market conditions in determining the impulse of monetary policy to the economy. So if stocks go down a lot, bond yields go up a lot, uh, you know, that would mean the Federal Reserve would have to do less rather than more. Yes, because what you're saying is effectively investors are doing the work for the Federal Reserve. They're doing the tightening automatically without requiring the Federal Reserve perhaps to adjust things more. Yeah, I mean, the oddest thing in the market is the market's still only expecting the peak in the federal funds rate this cycle to be only about 2% or so. That would be the lowest peak in any economic cycle in the U.S. Uh, going back to the mid-1950s. That seems a rather unusual <laughs> expectation, given that the labor market is extraordinary tight and inflation is well above the Fed's 2% objective. I mean, you also made the point in your first answer about the sort of three-in-one policy choices that they have here. They've said the, the emphasis perhaps is going to be on you know, looking at rate rises, but they're also still buying assets. They have to stop that. They then have to run down the balance sheet. How do you think the sort of calculus on that and the discussion on, about that is happening at the Federal Reserve right now, particularly in light of, of what we're seeing and the messages that are being sent, I think, by the data? Well, sometime this summer, I, I would expect them to begin to start to shrink their balance sheet. But they've made it very clear that the federal funds rate, short-term interest rates, is their primary tool for uh, driving U.S. monetary policy. And so the balance sheet tool, once it's sort of set in motion that they start to shrink the balance sheet, they'll sort of run, on the, run in the background on autopilot 
with the federal fund rate still being the primary tool. The Fed doesn't want to use both tools actively because it becomes very difficult to communicate to the market. Like, why are you today using this tool as opposed to the other tool? Better just to set the balance sheet on a, you know, a predetermined trajectory and use the federal fund rate as your primary tool. We've seen a lot of, I was going to call it froth, but then I'm being um, subjective. Um, we've seen a lot of value um, come out of meme stocks, the crypto sector, tech stocks in particular, and some incredible volatility after earnings from the tech stocks in particular. Um, do you think that's rational, sensible behavior perhaps kicking in in light of what we're seeing from the Fed? Well, it's hard to you know talk about rationality in terms of how some of these meme stocks performed uh, in the first place. So it might be a rational on the downside too. Uh, I, I don't have a, a strong view about you know what, where these things should be valued. I just know that if, if the Federal Reserve is raising short-term interest rates, uh, now you have a little bit more competition from the fixed income markets, and that's going to weigh on, on, on equity prices. But is that a good thing? I mean, as you say, we're, we're sort of questioning the rationality well, of some of the moves that we're seeing. Some part of that is liquidity driven. I mean, if the Fed needs to slow the economy down at some point, they need to tighten financial conditions. The way you do right. that is you push up on yields and you, and you push down stock prices. So, you know, the fun part of the you know, performance in financial asset part, markets is probably mostly behind us. But more volatility to come as a result. Absolutely, because we don't know how much the Federal Reserve is going to do. We don't know where inflation is going to go. I mean, we don't have a lot of experience with uh, post-pandemic recoveries. Uh, so the, the, the amount of uncertainty here is very high. And the Federal Reserve is not giving us any forward guidance. I mean, Chair Powell, in his recent, recent press conference, made it very clear we're going to have to be nimble. It depends on how things evolve. So the Fed hasn't committed itself to any particular path that will also increase the volatility in markets. Yeah, and that's the right move, too, because you can't guide on something you simply don't know. Exactly. Bill, great to have you with us. Come back again soon, please. Bill Dudley there. Okay, thank you. Former president of the New York Fed and a senior research scholar at Princeton University Center for Economic Policy Studies. Thank you once again. All right, up next, pageantry and politics in Beijing as the Winter Olympics begin. We're live in the Chinese capital once again. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and the Beijing 2022 Winter Olympics have officially begun. A stunning opening ceremony in the iconic Bird's Nest Stadium. The athletes entering through an archway described as the Gate of China, symbolizing the host nation opening its doors to the world. But the truth is pressure from diplomatic boycotts over human rights was also in evidence in Beijing. Only around 20 countries sent their national leader to the opening ceremony. And around half of them were heads of authoritarian governments. As Selena Wang reports. Vladimir Putin bringing the eyes of the world with him to Beijing. Like the Russian president, who has silenced his critics at home and threatened his enemies abroad, many of the dignitaries at the opening ceremony for the Winter Olympics do not have a glowing record when it comes to human rights and freedoms. It's a constant charge leveled at host China. We should not be here at all. While athletes from 91 teams will compete, far fewer will be represented by visiting VIPs at the opening ceremony. And most of those places are considered either not free or only partly free by U.S. rights group Freedom House. From Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman to Egypt's Abdel Fattah el-Sisi and the autocratic leaders of countries like Tajikistan and Turkmenistan, 
They're all filling a gap left by the United States and like-minded countries who are staging a diplomatic boycott. Washington says China's rights record, particularly the alleged genocide of its Uyghur Muslim minority, means it cannot contribute to the fanfare of the games. Despite mounting evidence, the Chinese government says it's not persecuting the Uyghurs. U.S. diplomatic or official representation would treat these games as business as usual in the face of the PRC's egregious human rights abuses and atrocities in Xinjiang. And we simply can't do that. A far cry from 2008 when George W. Bush sat shoulder to shoulder with Chinese officials. Saying basically to China, we despise your repressive, awful regime. We hate what you're doing with human rights abuses. We are not going to validate your Olympic Games. And we're not coming, but we're sending our athletes to do what they do. So it's really the perfect answer. But to Beijing, the party won't be spoiled by its many notable absentees. The 2008 Games were a moment for China to prove to the world what it was capable of. But this time around, the country isn't asking for approval, and the world is well aware of China's might. The U.S. believes its diplomatic snub will keep Beijing's rights record in focus. But as the West turns its back on China, Xi Jinping is finding friends elsewhere, friends who won't be so quick to criticize. What a difference 14 years makes. David Culver is live in Beijing for us. David, fantastic to have you with us. Um, at the end of that report there, we saw the image of President Xi of China, we saw President Putin of Russia. And I think of all the relationships among the leaders that we've seen there, this is the most fascinating, given what we see in terms of the backdrop. The 39th time, I believe, that these two leaders have met, which says something about the um, a reflection, I think, of their uh, longevity and uh, the political structures that they have back home. Um, but it is about the optics, too, as much as it's yeah. about the, the manifestation of the economics and the other relationship between them. Totally, Julia. Yeah. And, and, I, and I, th I think you're right. You compare those images from 14 years ago and you see George W. Bush, then president of the U.S., he was here meeting with his counterparts, a then vice president, Xi Jinping, as well as Putin. He was here. But uh, the focus has completely shifted. And Selena kind of hit on it there a bit where she said China is now saying, well, we know who our real friends are and they're here with us and they're celebrating this moment. But the, the optics are not only for the domestic audiences, both here in China as well as in Russia, it's really for the rest of the world. And China, as we know, they've repeatedly slammed the U.S. for politicizing these games through the diplomatic boycott over China's human rights record. And yet one of the biggest moments ahead of the opening ceremony is this in-person meeting between Putin and Xi, who, by the way, has not left this country since the start of the pandemic. And right now, both of them have just wrapped up attending the opening ceremony. Uh, the meeting sending a major geopolitical message, yeah, in part to the West and especially the U.S., but also, and perhaps this is more important here, to nations and democracies that have relied on the U.S. for global stability. The readouts are, are continuing to come out from state media, and we'll likely see those consistently echoed in the days, weeks, months to come. But they're saying that Putin and Xi have vowed to deepen their strategic coordination, adding that it's going to have a far-reaching impact on both China and Russia, and here's key, uh, the world at large. This meeting coming as the Ukraine crisis, I mean, concerns over a, a possible Russian invasion, that remains tense. And yet Putin here, you saw him in some of the images. He was at ease, certainly during the ceremony, taking it in calmly. Uh, as for that diplomatic boycott, as you know, uh, Juliet means essentially the U.S., the U.K., Canada, Australia, uh, from an official perspective, 
are not present. But of course, you've got their respective teams here. And this is also an interesting note from Team USA in particular. They almost seem to be pushing back on what has been a politicization, as the Chinese have portrayed it, and almost siding with with the, the Chinese and the Russian rhetoric in saying that they don't want sports to be politicized. Now, of course, the motivation from the Chinese and the Russians is very different from Team USA. Team USA instead saying, let's let our athletes do what they do best, and that is compete. And there were a record number of American athletes, 177, about 80% of all of them, who partook in the opening ceremony just a short time ago. And, and this is amidst, of course, incredibly strict COVID restrictions, part of China's zero COVID policy, Julia. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, you make a statement by boycotting these games, but you also allow the athletes to, in a way, just to get on with what they're doing by staying away. And it doesn't become sort of the photograph and the, uh, the sort of politicized version of events that they're sort of threatening, it, that it, they're suggesting that perhaps it is, at least from the US side. Um, fascinating. How far do you think this relationship yeah. on the surface, we see the diplomacy, the support for Russia's stance in Ukraine, for China's stance in Taiwan as an example. But I just when I look at who holds the cards in this relationship, I, I do feel like you know, China holds more than Russia and perhaps China needs Russia less than, than Russia needs China. I think you're right in that. And I don't think that's going to ever be echoed publicly here or, or stated certainly from the top. But if you just look at the economics of it, I mean, China, obviously, the second largest economy in the world. But Russia and China both have seen some benefit. Just in 2021 alone, last year, they saw more than 30 percent increase in imports and exports between these two nations. But to your point, it, it seems that China really doesn't need Russia as much as Russia is going to need China going forward just because of the economic power here. Nonetheless, China's not pushing that at all. They're saying, you know, we're, we're in the midst of mutual trust, we're on equal ground, and we stand together, and we hope the rest of the world joins us. That's, of course, the perspective they want to project. And even from a military perspective, you see the U.S., the U.K., Australia joining in AUKUS. China has rejected that, though they themselves have partook in military exercise with the Russians, but they say, we don't need to label that. That's not an actual alliance or an allegiance militarily. It's rather just two neighboring countries trying to protect their sovereign territory. Yes, it's certainly frosty out there, and that has nothing to do with the snow. David, uh, thank you so much for yeah. joining us. Great to have you with us. David Carver sure. there. All right, coming up on First Move, pumped up profit and prices at Amazon. The retail giant blowing past earnings expectations, but it is also raising prices for members. More on the prime bump up after this. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running for the last trading day of the week. And we've got a volatile first few minutes of trade tech trying to move higher after Thursday's sizable 3.7 percent drop. Poor earnings from Facebook's parent company Meta triggered the downward drop in the previous session. We are holding in the green for now. Today, it's all about a huge upward economic surprise. The U.S. adding a much stronger than expected 467,000 jobs last month. The Fed insisting for months that the jobs market remains extremely tight. And today's numbers definitely support that. All this pushing U.S. bond Yields higher. The 10-year U.S. government bond currently has a rate of 1.9%. But it's not all good news. Disappointing results from car giant Ford putting pressure on some of the blue chips. Ford reporting weaker than expected Q4 numbers as supply chain issues weigh on production. 
Meanwhile, Amazon spiking higher after its earnings beat. Snap surging after its first ever quarterly profit. But Meta adding, it seems, to its stunning 26% losses from yesterday. Paula Monica joins me now. Wow, Paul, we've got a lot to discuss. Let's start with Amazon. Great news from them. The price of Prime in the United States is rising. And you can thank Rivian for the dramatic profit beat versus expectations. There's a lot in this one, Paul. What do you make of it? Yeah, we've got a lot to unpack, Julia. Let's start with that Prime price hike. Clearly not something that many subscribers will be happy with. Yet another sign of inflation, perhaps. But I think that many Amazon loyal Prime users will continue to probably pay it begrudgingly because of the services, the shipping, the content that they get in Prime Video, that all of that comes with that. So I think it's going to be fascinating to see how Amazon navigates this price hike and any potential consumer backlash. But one thing, Rivian also, you know, definitely a big gain from its investment in that electric truck company. But the thing that I found really most telling in this Amazon earnings report, Julia, the core business is still not making money. That is losing money. Retail is a notoriously tough business. Amazon Web Services, huge operating profits for this unit. The cloud is what powers Amazon. And if there was any question when Jeff Bezos passed the reins to Andy Jassy, who used to be the AWS head, why is it gonna be this guy? That's why, because AWS is a beast. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And actually, there's a great comparison here with Facebook where, what, 99.5% of the money that they're making is in advertising, whereas you look at Amazon's business model and, yeah, the retail business is one thing, but you've got the web services, you've got the interest in electric cars, you've got a number of different things that diversifies the business in terms of growth going forward. Um, And that sort of ties me to the next point, because I wanted to get your take on what we're seeing in terms of the share price moves after some of these earnings. I mean, Netflix was down 20 percent. We've got Snap. Fine. It made its first ever profit. But that leaping, what, 44 percent. We can check that. Amazon. You know, I take a step back to my time in in finance and I look at some of these moves and I say, these aren't healthy markets. These are bonkers market moves. Yeah, I think there's there's two points I would make. First, I totally agree with you, Julia. It is completely bonkers to see these large cap stocks having these ginormous price moves on earnings. I don't think that is necessarily healthy. But I think a bigger point, and this is something that we in the financial media can probably do a better job at with the investing community, we sometimes lump all of these tech companies in together as fang, this amorphous blob of big tech. But as we've seen with the results, there's a big difference between Meta and Amazon. There's a big difference between Apple and Alphabet. There are going to be winners and losers within fang. You can't just say, oh, all the fangs are going to rise on the same tide. There are definitely fundamental differences and competition that comes into play, which is a reason why it's still a stock picker's market maybe not a sector picker's market. Yeah, couldn't agree more. So we're banning Fang. We're banning Fang on this show. Is that the message here? We're no longer lumping these together, even just as tech stocks, because they are so fundamentally different. I think you raise such a good point and we have to sort between them better. We take responsibility. Paula Monica.
Thank you for that. Have a great weekend. Now, Amazon's profits might float investors' boats, but Jeff Bezos is also thinking about his own. He's commissioned a super yacht being built in Rotterdam, but it would require part of an iconic bridge to be dismantled so that it can pass beneath it. Yes, it's reported Bezos and the shipyard would foot the bill, but not everybody's so happy about it. Nada Bashir joins us now. Great to have you with us. So, I'm confused here. Either the city did or did not agree to allow this beautiful bridge to be dismantled temporarily to allow this boat to escape. So it was perhaps a bridge too far to get this in writing beforehand. Well, Julia, it's certainly raising numerous questions, particularly how they didn't think of this before. But if you do have a boat that's too big to fit under a bridge, what do you do? If you're Jeff Bezos, one of the world's richest men, you could just pay a large sum and ask the local authorities to take the bridge down. That is what we're seeing and hearing now from Rotterdam. Let me just give you a sense of what we know so far. This super yacht being commissioned by Jeff Bezos is currently in the process of being built in Rotterdam. And it is, as we understand it, nearing completion. But in order to get to the ocean, in order to get the super yacht to Jeff Bezos, it will have to pass through an iconic and historic steel bridge in Rotterdam known as the D. Hef Bridge. But as you mentioned, the yacht is simply too big to do that. So now the shipbuilding company Ocean Co. and Jeff Bezos are requesting from local authorities for the bridge to be dismantled. And as you can imagine, it has proved to be quite a divisive request amongst the locals. Take a listen. The more monies you have, the more power you get, even though it goes against principles of the city. The city said, we're not going to do it. What can I say? I guess big money wins again, as always. But it will also create some employment, of course, and I think that's important for this region as well. Now, we've heard from members of the local authorities. They've said that there is, of course, an important and significant project for Rotterdam. It is, of course, Europe's maritime capital, and it has generated some employment. And it's important to note the shipbuilding company and Jeff Bezos have said they'll cover the cost of dismantling and putting the bridge back together again. But it has caused debate not only in the Dutch city, but also further afield. Let me quickly read you this tweet from U.S. House Representative Adam Schiff. If Jeff Bezos can pay to dismantle a bridge in the Netherlands to fit his super yacht, then his company should have no trouble paying their fair share in taxes so that we can build bridges in America. So clearly a lot of debate there. But while this request is still under consideration, Jeff Bezos might not be getting his super yacht as quickly as he had anticipated. Julia? Yes, Dutch GDP, $950 billion this year expected. Bezos wealth, $160 billion. He can most definitely afford it. It is a bridge over troubled water. I wonder if they could bridge the divide. And what's the captain's name? Bridget. Maybe. Lada, great to have you with us. Thank you. Start to come. More with this move. Stay with us. When COVID first hit Japan, this vending machine helped Sugaku Matsuno shop Mussolini stay afloat, one chiffon cake at a time. Customers could buy our products without human interaction whenever they wanted. After installing the machine, sales eventually increased 20%. If I had spent my life just waiting for customers, I would have lost my mind and not been able to continue this business. The vending machine relieved that stress. Vending machines are a staple in Japan. 
There are over 5.5 million of them in the country, one for every 23 people, the highest ratio in the world. And while it helped Matsuno shop, experts say the overall industry took a hit during the pandemic. People started working from home and the commuter traffic uh, collapsed and hence there's nobody walking by the vending machines. Tech firm VPC Asia has been working in the vending machine industry for five years. It developed this device that helps upgrade older machines by connecting them to the internet, allowing access to the machines without having to touch or be near it. Customers can buy its products and check what's for sale using their smartphones, while operators can find out when and what products are out of stock, allowing them to route trucks more efficiently. Beyond these uses, Steiner says there's even more potential for innovation, opting to look at the machines as real estate. There are so many, and they're in prime locations. And so what else can I do other than just selling the drinks or, or, or the food? By including additional sensors, cameras, and other types of tech, Steiner says the machines could serve various purposes, from marketing, data storage, weather forecasting, noise analysis for crime prevention, to earthquake monitoring. The vibration, we can uh, monitor earthquakes. Um, we cannot predict earthquake, but we can warn. We have millions of spots in Japan that we can see where earthquake comes from and maybe gain 10, 20 seconds. The platform is ready for all of these, meaning we've, we've built it, we've tested it, we've designed it, it's all there. While the tech may be ready, there's still a ways to go before we can see it on the market. Steiner says it still needs buy-in from all the different stakeholders. The issue is how it integrates into the existing systems, uh, into the society. Are they ready to use that data for earthquake or crime prevention? That is something that will take not months, but years till everybody adapts. Still, with millions of vending machines operating across Japan, it provides room for creative innovation and competition. VPC Asia hopes to create a new blueprint for the future of these iconic machines. And as for chiffon cake maker Matsuno, she's looking ahead to her future. I will continue to use a vending machine even after the pandemic ends. There are many customers who come at all hours of the day, so I want to keep providing my cakes for them. Thank you very much for watching. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next, and I'll see you on Monday. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.